welcome to stat. I'm telling you all medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre. Karen Wickham, yeah, she used to work in the R, and now she's sharing the knowledge. So let's get involved. Hey, funny and scary at the same time. Medical mysteries, all facts. She ain't lying. <laughs> so tune in the stat if you dare, 'cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat Shocking Traumas and Treatments, and I am your host, Karen Wickham, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And of course, I have the beautiful Mary with me here today. Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are. Oh, that was very uh, musical. Thank you. I well, love Truman Show. What? A Truman Show. The Truman Show. Yeah, when when Jim Carrey, he would always say, good morning, good afternoon. If I don't see you, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Um, I was thinking about Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam. That's, <laughs> that's what I was thinking That's of. a very iconic one as well, too. Okay. Well, what are we going to talk about today? Um, another psychopath doctor. Dr. Dale Cavanis. I didn't really know about this guy. See... I've covered a lot of serial killers, doctors and nurses, but I haven't done a lot of just horrible doctors that don't necessarily have to be a serial killer. They can be abusive, sick psychopaths like this guy. So as much as this is absolutely horrific, I was fascinated by what he got away with and of course how he got to be that way. And the depths of depravity that he fell into. So, is that enough of an opener to make you interested? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm going to say it right off the top. I did get quite a bit of this information from a book called Murder in Little Egypt. It um, was absolutely, I read it and I'm like, OMG. This is crazy. And I also went online and um, read as much as I could about him online um, in documentaries and, um, you know, YouTube stuff. But uh, yeah, I'm giving a shout out, actually full credit to the author, Darcy O'Brien. So yeah, um, like I said, the book is amazing. You can go pick it up. And I gathered quite a bit of information from that book. So Let's uh let's get into this. So this episode is about the maniacal Dr. Dale Cavanis. He was a hometown hero idolized by the citizens of El Dorado. I want to say El Dorado, but apparently you pronounce it El Dorado. And surrounding towns of Southern Illinois. Now, I didn't know much about Southern Illinois before reading all about this. I was more well-versed in Places such as, you know, New York, Florida, Texas, California, you know, places like this. But then I forgot Chicago, Chicago is in Illinois. But I didn't know about Southern Illinois. And it's very different from the big city to very small town. So this this story is the, the, the Southern Illinois and its people are collaboratively, <laughs> collaboratively a character in itself, in this this story. And you'll see why. He was a true Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a skillful doctor and surgeon who really listened to his patients. He was described as kind and understanding in a modern-day Robin Hood who wouldn't charge patients who were too poor to pay. 
He was also an absolute tyrant who abused his family and the staff that worked for him. What's more is that this highly respected physician's behavior was completely overlooked and chalked up to funny shenanigans. After all, he could do whatever he wanted in his spare time. Funny shenanigans. I don't know how murder is considered funny shenanigans. <laughs> well, you'll see why. Because he was a jokester, a prankster, and he... They, they could justify all of his behavior, therefore he could justify all his own behavior. You know, he was a god in his own eyes as well. So whatever he did, there was, he didn't do anything wrong. So let's, let's talk about his origin. Dale Cavanis was born October 15th, 1925. I am just upset that I share a month and a sign with him. <laughs> There's those Libra yeah. psychopaths. Damn Libra psychopaths. Um, well, he's not a serial killer though, right? No. Um, he, well, we'll, we'll see. Okay. Uh, plus, what the definition is. Of how well, people... three or more. In okay. some places, some people, sometimes it's two or more, but uh, you'll see why. It's, he was a possible serial killer. So he was born to Noma and Pat Cavanis. Noma was a domineering, deeply religious, manipulative, and narcissistic woman. She placed guilt on Dale almost from birth and all throughout childhood and into adulthood. She was constantly reminding Dale that she almost died in childbirth. And because of him, she was unable to have another child. So you imagine growing up being told, I almost died because of you, and I couldn't have any more children because of you, and then constantly being reminded of it. Yeah, that's not cool. I'm. Well, how do you feel the love from that? Like so much guilt is placed on their on little kid little boy's yeah, shoulders like, how is that his fault no exactly um so when he was a toddler let's say three four years old she would play a sick trick on him and it was called the death game i mean what does that tell you right there <laughs> he would crawl into bed you know like kids do with their parents to cuddle and to be read to and just to hang out and in the middle of a story or whatever she would all of a sudden pretend to be dead and the little boy would touch her face and, and hug her and shake her and, you know, no, mommy, don't die, don't die. And he would become hysterical, sometimes throwing himself on the ground in grief. And he, all of a sudden she would gasp for air, pop her eyes open, and then start laughing at him. Okay. In the words of Erica, what the fukuko? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like... That is sucking. That's twisted. That is twisted. I mean, it's bad enough that she guilt tripped him about, you know, his birth and stuff. And then to pretend to die. Like, a kid that small doesn't understand that. Well, yeah. I mean, is it because did he get his his pranks from his mother, his sick pranks uh, from that? Or did she, like, need to know that she was loved from this little boy? And do this for her own attention. It, it's it's just sick. And you can see as we go on where he, I think, uh, adopted this trait from his it's mother. It's just disturbing. Disturbing behavior. Yeah. And at the same time, she smothered him. Um, until So she smothered him until he was about 10 years old. And he slowly was able to escape her tight grasp as he got older. Um, the Cavanesses were pretty well off, which was particularly remarkable because it was during the Depression when so many people could barely keep a roof over their heads and eat. The Cavanesses thrived in comparison. Dale's father, Peck Cavanesses, worked for Louisville and Nashville Railroad as a brakeman. 
and he would spend his days away from home. He worked days away, like, like I said, days away from home and really odd hours. So he spent most of his time with his mother. He was, he was stuck with this uh, crazy bitch. Mm-hmm. I see a pattern here. So Dale wasn't just smothered by his mother. He was surrounded by family. Her family lived around them. Their house was sandwiched between her parents and her aunt and uncle. So he couldn't get away from the Dales. That was their, their last name. And the Dales had, they were considered well off. In fact, the Dales were among the first settlers in El Dorado. And they took great, great pride in this. So they were already sort of royalty in uh, El Dorado, surrounding areas. So Noma wanted Dale to live up to the family standards and surpass them. She dressed him in fancy short pants, shiny shoes, and white tops when the other kids were running around in overalls, getting dirty and having fun. And he was not allowed to get dirty. If he did, she would freak out on him. She made him learn violin. And he re- deeply resented her for that. So can you imagine all the other kids are out running around, getting dirty, having fun, playing ball, fishing, goofing around. And here's little Dale in fancy short pants and shiny shoes playing the violin. If anything else, it would be like, F you, ma. Oh, my God. He must have been teased and shit. Oh, he, <laughs> he, he was. It, you know, it makes me think about another doctor who went through this, Harold Shipman. Right. Yeah. I yes. mean, her, their His parents. Mother was the same. You ha- you're better than everybody else, and but the parents sound she the dressed same. Dressed him in fancy pants too. Yeah, she was. He was around his mother all the time. She had very similar uh, personality as Noma, and the dad was always working. So, right. But his mom was really ill, though. At one point, well, she became yeah, really she became Ill. really ill. Yeah, okay. So, anyway, you know, just uh, similar, and you know, I she wasn't few- pretending to be dying. <laughs> no, she wasn't pretending to be dying. <laughs> she was actually dying. Yeah. So as you can imagine, like we were just saying, he was uh, a target for teasing and bullying. And he was getting beaten up all the time. And this, I don't think she could have done a worse thing, but she went to the school and made it worse for him. Now, I'm not saying parents shouldn't protect their kids. Absolutely. Same thing with me. I'd be like hunting everybody down. But in the same token... You can imagine this woman going in and her behavior and how she addressed it, that the other kids would be going like, oh, there you go, little mommy's boy, right? Well, yeah, and there would be the, you know, you think you're better than me attitude that she has, you know, like, because, oh, we were the first people to settle here and stuff. And, you know, different generation, too. Like, back then, it was... Oh, 1930s, Depression time, you know, absolutely. Very different, very different. Now it's, you weren't seen as, like, the squeaky wheel or the complainer you know i mean like god i hope it's not like that but well it depends you still on the- hear horror stories about bullying yeah absolutely so i mean it, it just it's a whole different approach now but anyway children are just little shits when they're young they can be yes not all kids are but there are the the ones that that can that are bullied obviously coming from families it's not necessarily their fault but it doesn't decrease the amount of damage that is done in in any way but it it just takes one to influence many and you're going to see how this affects him in the long run anyway so the attacks just kept getting worse and worse so one day his father stepped in on one of the days that he was home and i'm sure he resented his father for being left with this crazy bitch as well 
So he was running up his driveway being chased by these kids. And his father was at the house and he saw this happening and the kids ran off when they saw the dad, Peck. And Peck said to Dale, you need to confront them, stand up for yourself. No matter what happens, whether you get beaten up or not, you have to fend for yourself. Then he told them stories about how when he was young and was faced, um, had faced bullies and what he had done. And he flat out said, if you're not going to do that, don't come home. Truly supportive parenting there. So he became really tough. So he learned how to fight, how to push back. And with each fight that he won, he gained more and more confidence. And he pretty much just told his mother to piss off. <laughs> he was not going to wear his fancy clothes and jeans, overalls, whatever. He was going to go out, have fun, get messy and screw the violin. And, you know, what is she going to do? Because she's been able to um, smother this kid for so long. But when he comes out, literally fists up and his dad telling him not to come home, you know, unless he, he, he defends himself, all of a sudden mom's left on the in the wings. And she really didn't. She, well, I don't think she could stand a chance. Now, Dale has said or had said that it was this point in his life that was a turning point for him. He swore that uh, he would never be bullied or beaten up again. He was not going to take any crap off of anybody. And with his deep-seated hatred towards his mother, on top of that, he wasn't going to put up with her demands and her chastising and guilt. So like I said before, his family was really well off and that made it possible that for them to go on road trips, to go swimming, fishing, hunting, that kind of stuff. So he was able to express himself and go out and have fun and he had made friends. Because think about it, in those times, people couldn't really afford gas, let alone a vehicle. So he was able and he, he was able to start spending more time with his, with his dad when his dad was home. One thing that really started to come about with him was that he was a terrible sore loser he could he would do everything it took to win and be better than anybody his dad taught him how to shoot with a gun well he had to be a better shot than his dad he had to be a better shot than anyone um same with fighting he would get into fights because someone maybe was beating him in something whether it was some kind of game or he had to get the biggest fish. He had to win every game. And if he didn't, he was a really sore loser. He would beat the shit out of people, have a fit, have a temper tantrum. He became the bully. Now, Dale wasn't a big guy, five, 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 six, but he made up for his size with ruthlessness. And the other thing he would do is taunt people. So the ultimate bully taunting, fighting, verbally and physically abusing. And on top of that, he worked at being the best. So when it came to being in high school and getting into sports, he wanted to be the best, best track athlete. So he would do wind sprints for hours every day, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, to get faster, have better technique. Basketball, he would shoot hoops 
over and over and over again. He became obsessive with all of these things so that he could be the best. So he started high school in 1939 at the El Dorado Township High School, and his reputation preceded him. He gained a lot of uh, confidence in high school, and he was an arrogant loudmouth with constant attention-seeking behavior. He had to be the center of attention, and basically he was a complete jerk. Most people didn't like him, but he was very popular because, again, one person can create a lot of heart, uh, heartache for a lot of people. They were afraid of him, so they just went along with his bullshit. One of the things he was known for was his practical jokes. They were not lighthearted or fun. They were often cruel and humiliating for his victim. They led to tears and sometimes fistfights, which he wanted to happen, and then he would beat the shit out of them. They just didn't want to be a target. What's that uh, saying? It's better to be feared than something? Liked or something? I don't know. Something like that. He was like a little punk, basically. Or better to the devil you know instead of the the devil you don't. So it's better to, like, you know, fawn over him or whatever than be target of his, you know. And you see that happens with bullies. Mm-hmm. That they have this little following who is really either vindictive and love what he does or are afraid that they don't want to be his target. So some of the jokes he played aren't going to sound like all that serious, but if you break it down, they really are. So he would put tax on people's seats. Ha ha, tax. No, that would hurt like hell. And you can't say anything. You just have to put up with it, be humiliated. He would also trip people when they were walking by. So you're going up to do something at the front of the classroom. Boom, you're on your face. Um, The other thing he did was this one girl had a brand new wristwatch she was really proud of. And he just ripped it off her wrist and uh, smashed it on the ground. And, uh, you know, so these are the things that he... jerk. Well, yeah. So it's like, oh, you know, boys being boys, that kind of stuff. But no, this this was stuff that he got away with. And his teachers let him get away with this stuff. Because he was the star student, the star athlete. And they were probably a little afraid of him as well. And these these jokes just got worse, more vicious and destructive. So he ran the school. He could do whatever he wanted. I mean, can you imagine someone with his kind of ego? He just felt he was untouchable. And I think his mother kind of subconsciously pushed him in that direction as well. From a young age, he was told he had to be better. He had to be the best. He was superior. And then she also played the sick jokes. So what's he like? He thinks he's better. He thinks he's the best. And he plays sick jokes. Yep. And she, you know, probably at that point just overlooked that behavior or just didn't, because what's the big deal, right? Well, you can overlook it because he was still the best at everything, right? Well, you can create a monster until the monster's bigger than you. Ooh, that was a good one. Did you just make that up now? I did, but I'm sure it's been said before. Oh, well, it's very true. So here's something that's really sick that she loved to do. She loved to go to funerals. Like they were a day out for her. If there was a funeral in El Dorado and there's towns uh, like Harrisburg um, that were close by, Saline County is where they lived, If there was anything that she knew about, she would show up at these funerals, whether she knew them or not, dressed in black and mourning with the people and, you know, singing the hymns and following them out to the to the cemetery and then going for like the after, um, you know, celebrations. Who does that? Yeah. Like, honestly, 
a busybody? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's like this sick thing. But she, when she was there, she would also say terrible things about the person who died. She'd be like, well, if only they had eaten better, if only they had lived a more pure, uh, God-fearing life, if only, if only, like... I just, You're not supposed to speak ill of the dead, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I think that's old and outdated because I'm happy to speak ill of the dead if the dead was a psycho piece of shit. <laughs> I know. I have no problem with that. Well, that wasn't what she was doing. Well, no. I mean, these people... She was being a you know, nosy, busybody, know-it-all. Superior, you know, and I guess it just brought her... I don't know. Obviously, there was something sick behind it as well. So I think there was a, another event... In fact, I can pretty confidently say this this event that happened led him to wanting to be a doctor for the complete wrong reasons. There was a natural disaster that devastated southern Illinois. Um, the Ohio River flooded and the towns of El Dorado and surrounding areas. Um, a million and a half acres were destroyed. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. The economy tanked. People lost everything. They were homeless and starving and dying from diseases caused by the unsanitary conditions from the flooding, cholera, typhoid, and in the water that flooded, you know, it just doesn't flood for one day, it flooded for quite a long time. There would be like dead animals floating, like farm animals and animals floating in the water. So you can imagine the disease sewers Mm. and just all the detritus from everything that would just be soaked in this in this water there wasn't enough medical staff to go around not enough doctors not enough nurses not enough supplies it was just horrible so people were beginning to use old home remedies to try to you know help fix the some of the diseases that were going around but things like you know malnutrition was a huge thing they were these people were starving mental illness Imagine losing absolutely everything and being homeless. And thing people have died. You are sick as a dog. It's it's just Well, and there wouldn't have been the infrastructure and stuff like this sounds like a very rural, you know. Yeah. farmland. One thing about this area is that it's very like divided that you have the quite wealthy by by those time standards or well-to-do um and the very very poor and there really wasn't anything in between. So they started using home remedies such as, I, I just find this stuff fascinating. A dirty sock tied around a throat cured tonsillitis. Um, pick an aching tooth with a hickory splinter and then stick the splinter in a fresh dug grave would help get rid of the, the aching tooth. Tea made from sheep droppings cured measles. Oh, ew. Uh, but you got I would some- like some sheep shit and peat moss in a cup, and I'm going to drink that, and all these bumps are going away. I don't know why I talked like Yeah, it might have cured the mumps, but what else would you have gotten? Oh, my God. Who, who knows? Meebles. Meebles. Measles. <laughs> a drop of buttermilk poured into the ear soothed the earache. So the doctors were exalted as heroes. So why would Dale want to be a doctor? Not to help people, but to be seen as... A hero. A hero complex. Okay. And it was his mother's constant nattering and bizarre behavior that this tragic disaster sealed the deal for him. So you take all her crazy shit, her 
medical disasters in itself and everybody seeing, you know, the medical staff that were able to help as heroes. If you could see a doctor, then you were blessed. So moving forward, he began dating a young lady by the name of Helen Jean Pierce in high school. And she was the pretty daughter of a prominent doctor, Hmm. Lee Pierce. So he positioned himself perfectly. Noma, of course, was really happy. So the names of the Pierces were Lee and Irma Pierce. And they saw their daughter dating uh, a star athlete and student and future doctor. Dale graduated in 1943, and he and Helen Jean got engaged, and Dale decided to join the Navy. After the military, he would go to med school. So he spent two years in the Navy, entering the officer's candidate school at the University of North Carolina, and this allowed him to take courses towards university credits. Helen Jean and Dale got married soon after he was discharged. Dale started university and received his Bachelor's of Science from the University of Illinois with honors in 1947. He then entered the Washington University St. Louis Medical School. That's a mouthful. <laughs> in September 1947. Washington University in St. Louis. Louis Medical School. School. Dale and Helen lived in a small apartment. And they got by um, because Helen worked part-time. And their parents would kick in a few bucks just to help them keep their head above water. And they decided to put off having children which, you know, until after he graduated medical school, which, you know, totally made sense. He did well in medical school. He didn't have time for sports, but he continued to be involved in the student parliament. The bad aspects of his personality had not changed since high school. He was still the same arrogant bully. Now check this out. Dr. Pierce had built a new modern hospital in El Dorado, and he named it the Pierce Cavernous Hospital. So you imagine being in medical school, just been married, and the father-in-law and the father-in-law names the hospital after you or puts his name on it. So it's yeah. the Pierce Cavanagh. Like, no wonder his ego was out of control. Well, I'm wondering if the Cavanagh family, like, donated quite a bit of money well, to it I don't something? know. They helped. No, no, not at all. He just, you know, Pierce was sort of like, well, we've got two doctors in the family and he's going to come home and help me run this hospital. What a perfect situation. And so you can see why why, uh, Dale's ego would be richly fed. It wasn't just all work, work, work for Dale and Helen Jean. They did uh, have some friends that they went out with and would have drinks with occasionally. And there was a couple in particular that they spent a lot of time with. And this was Chet Williams, who was another medical student that he was going to school with, and Marion Newberry, who was a nurse at the time. So some things were going on behind closed doors. And in June 1950, Dale dropped by the hospital to see Marion. He asked her if she would like to go on a blind date with an awesome guy by the name of Elad Sinavik. And she said she would have to think about it. So that being odd, Marion called up Helen Jean and said, have you heard of this guy, Elad Sinavik? And Helen said to her that it was Dale Cavanus backwards. That's so lame. You go out with Elad Sinavik? It's just so childish. Maybe it's because I don't like him, but that just bugs me. So anyway, 
Feeling silly, she asked Helen Jean what was going on. She told Marion that her and Dale were separated and would be getting a divorce. And she didn't really say why. Marion had no intention of dating Dale, not just because she was the husband of Helen Jean, because she wasn't attracted to him. And she was kind of still dating Chet. Shortly after, Dale apologized to Marion and convinced her to go out for coffee with him. Of course, he told his side of the story, playing the victim. That's the thing with manipulators like this. They often um, weave in lies with the truth. So it kind of gives more credibility to their lies. Do you know what I'm saying? So um, she felt sorry for him. And uh, the thing is, too, is that Helen Jean and Chet had, in fact, fallen in love with each other and were going to get married after the divorce. So um, that made this uh, story a little bit more interesting. So he manipulated Marion with his sob stories and uh, she felt sorry for him. Okay, so wait. So Helen Jean, his wife, falls in love with Chet, the friend who's dating Marion. Marion. So it's like a partner's wife swap almost, but yeah, they weren't married much. or anything like that. Yeah. I should probably realize what a jerk he was. <laughs> well, I think what happened was that um, there's no way he was an innocent victim. He was a loudmouth, controlling, arrogant bully. And I'm convinced that Helen Jean was actually a victim of, of, of him. Can you imagine being married to this asshole? And Chet probably came across as a, a really nice guy, the exact opposite. And I don't know if he was a really nice guy, but for whatever reason, they fell in love and... Helen Jean wanted a divorce. So what does Dale do? Oh, well, she's marrying Chet. Well, then I'm going to go after Marion. I'll, I'll show you. As you can imagine, this is incredibly humiliating to the great Dale Cavanis that he was no longer going to be married to the doctor's daughter and she was, he was cheated on. So, you know, can you imagine how that uh, played out with him? But, uh, well, was he? For, like, cheated on, or they just fell in love? Like, no, a- like, she cheated on him with Chet. Oh, okay. So, Chet was seeing Marion and Helen Jean at the same time. However, Marion was, they weren't serious. At, the, at that point in time, they were kind of both dating other people and they would go out and have fun together, kind of thing. So, they weren't serious. So, for Marion, she wasn't broken up about it, but she was just really surprised how everything played itself out. So, even though Marion said that she had no interest in dating Dale, um, Dale, you know, wooed her and manipulated her and uh, she started to date him. And this would turn out to be the biggest mistake of her life because she ended up marrying this sick bastard. Now, let's talk about Marion a little bit to get to know her a bit. Um, she grew up in a middle class neighborhood in St. Louis. She had a brother who was three and a half years older than her. And when she was a year and a half and her brother five, her parents got divorced. And this was in 1929. And they got divorced because her father was an alcoholic and couldn't hold a job and offered no support to the family. So his mother was just like, look, at I'm doing this on my own and I'm feeding you too. So she just got out of there. Marion's mother supported herself and her children by working as a housekeeper. And for a time, they were apart. Her mother and brother moved into a one-room apartment. And her mom didn't feel like it was a good place for a little girl to grow up in. So she um, asked her brother and sister if they could take care of her until she get into a better place. Now, so for Marion, being really young, being separated from your family is pretty traumatic but she also got the feeling that she just wasn't wanted there she 
So can you imagine being that little and no longer your dad's gone, your, your brother and your mom are living elsewhere, and now you're in a place where you're not wanted or don't feel wanted. Um, but the family did reunite when her mom was able to buy a little house. Somehow she was able to scrape the money together. So a little bit about Marion's mom to help you understand things. Uh, she grew up rich herself. But when the stock, uh, stock market crashed, her family lost everything. But during that time, she was raised with an excellent education. She went to um, the ballet and, you know, uh, art museums, things like that. She so was very cultured. Very cultured. And she wanted her children to experience these things. So she read to them and uh, emphasized the importance of education and doing well in school. Uh, she was able to scrape money together for Marion to take p piano lessons and also introduced her to the arts. So she just wanted to, she, in whatever way possible, tried to um, get her children to be well-rounded. And they pretty much never saw their father for, you know, obvious reasons. Then, tragically, her mother suddenly died when she was 13 years old. So now she's lost everybody but her brother. Marion and Bill went to live with a family friend, Truman and Ella Yard. And these people were amazing. So that's, if anything good is going to come out of this, that they went, she went to live with them and they adopted her and her brother as family. So she grew up in a solid uh, family setting where, the, you know, they were middle class and she was able to carry on with the arts and in school and being in a loving family. So she did well in, in school and then went on to become a nurse. She went to nursing school um, at the Washington University School of Nursing and had a great time. She was very popular and enjoyed a variety of social activities. So she was really outgoing. She did well in school, couldn't become a nurse, really social, popular, just, you know, getting on with life. And by the time she met Dale, she had been working as a nurse for three years, but didn't really enjoy the job. She felt it was kind of tedious and she wanted to do something more glamorous uh she wanted to become a flight attendant and travel all over the place this will factor in a little bit further on so like i said dale and marion began dating and it got serious really fast she introduced him to her family and friends and they all approved dale was engaging and smart and had a great future so you know he could definitely manipulate people or on the charm exactly oh what could be better than a nurse getting married to a to a gregarious you know talented doctor so dale found out that he would be interning at the union memorial hospital in baltimore and she took this opportunity to become a flight attendant and that way they could live closer to each other she didn't have to be a nurse now she could fly and um but they were really serious with each other at this point, and they were completely exclusive. Didn't really talk about getting married. She finally met Dale's family in the spring of 1951, and it couldn't have been more of an, you know, opposite situation. They drove down to El Dorado from St. Louis, and Mary had always lived in a city, and she didn't know much about small towns and the rural country. And she really didn't know what to expect. And she was very surprised by how poor and shabby it was. There was initially beautiful farmland and scenery just, you know, getting out of the city. But as she, they got further towards El Dorado, the landscape was scattered with broken down houses and coal mines. 
El Dorito was dismal and dated, and it didn't show signs of prosperity. I would imagine after that natural disaster, even though it was quite a few years before that, that just some things didn't recover. Like people had to move on and abandon houses and look for work somewhere else. So probably yeah, some things it- are just left where they fell as yeah. well. So you can imagine broken down cars and yeah, exactly. Um, but Dale seemed very proud of this bleak place. Now there's nothing wrong with going home. I'm from Toronto originally. Then our family had to move to a remote sort of small town area. And we lived in a very broken down cottage, let's, so, let's say. And so I was around a very different type of, of life. Then I moved out of the city, became a nurse, and everything moved on forward from that. But I still like to go home. Do you know what I mean? Even though there was uh, big parts of it that I I don't like, when I get into the area, uh, I really feel like this is home or was home. And, you know, you get a bit of a warm feeling about it. But especially for Dale, because this is where he's a god, right? So she didn't say anything about this place because she didn't want to upset him. And that night they had a big family dinner and she felt completely out of place. They were telling family stories and town stories, you know, all with inside jokes and stuff. And she, they were very uncultured and she was afraid that she would appear like a snob. So she just sort of sat there and tried to have a conversation when she could, but that's very hard to do in this situation. And she really got a sense about Noma right from the very beginning. And she did not feel comfortable around her. Also, on top of that, Dale spoke very unkindly about his mother, and she got the impression that he didn't like her very much either. So you can just imagine the the whole dynamic at this at this family dinner. Yeah, just a weird name to Noma. Noma. Well, but what if a whole bunch of people listen to this that are named Noma? They're going to be like, "Wait a minute, Mary. That's not very nice. What kind of name is Mary?" <laughs> My name's I Karen. Just, I've never heard. And my of course, name's Karen. I think, like, I, I have the Christmas. worst name in the world right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think of the Christmas lights when I hear Noma. But yeah. <laughs> that's, we have those in Canada. <laughs> I know you're looking for something to dislike her more. So you're like, now you're going after her name. <laughs> no, I've just never, I've never heard that as a, as a first name. Mm-hmm. So at this dinner, one thing, Marion liked her, liked his dad, Peck, because he seemed sort of, you know, laid back and easygoing, easy to laugh. And there was really no nothing coming off of him other than just being a, a, a friendly, welcoming face or person. But one of the things that's, I mean, this would stand out that Dale didn't like his mother very much, um, is that one time they met in Baltimore and like uh, Noma and Peck went down to visit them and she wrote him a check for a hundred bucks. And she was like, uh, Now, don't spend it on this and don't spend it on that. You know, your father works really hard for this money. And so, like, I don't know. I I think that if, you know, I come from the situation, if I'm going to lend something to somebody, whether it's a shirt or money, 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 (laughs) or money, I don't expect it back. If you give it back to me, fantastic. And I'm not saying, here's some money, don't give it back. The expectation is that. But if I don't give it back, I've already given it away. 
And I'm certainly not going to tell you what to do with it. If you say you need it for this reason, I'm going to believe you need it for this reason. And that's that. So an ego like Dale's having his mother writing him a check and then telling him how he can spend it over and above, can't, like hating her to begin with, it was the perfect storm. And he ripped the, uh, ripped the check up and flipped out on her. And again, especially small town and family and stuff, you don't yell at your mother. And he just went mental on her. And Marion's like, what the hell? But then she sort of was like, but I'm proud of him for standing up to his mom because she really is not a very nice person. So you can see how initially she fell into this, this terrible scenario. So as time moved on, Dale and Marion's relationship had become very serious and they had gone away for a vacation. And at this point, they looked at each other and said, hey, you want to get married? And that was sort of their proposal to each other. They were married on October 3rd, 1952. Dale was offered a lucrative position by an established internist at the Union Memorial Hospital in Baltimore. It would be a great start for him. It would set him on uh, the track for success early on in his career. Marion was so excited about this because she loved Baltimore and she would be surrounded by culture and people and everything, but he turned it down. Of course. She couldn't understand why. He refused to discuss it with her, but she accepted this and decided that uh, he knew what he was doing, that he had their best interests at heart. During that time, he moved to St. Louis to finish up his internship, and she wasn't really too upset about that either because she loved St. Louis as well. So she's thinking, oh, maybe we'll settle in the St. Louis area. In June 1954, Dale told Marion that they would be moving to southern Illinois just outside of El Dorado. Dale and a fellow doctor would be taking over a well-established practice from a physician that was retiring. He didn't discuss it with her. He didn't consider her at all. So you can imagine she was confused and hurt. Imagine. Yep, we're moving to Southern Illinois. Not like, what do you think about moving there? <sighs> she didn't want to live in such a bleak and destitute area especially in El Dorado, where his mother would be right close by. Also, he went and bought a house. He didn't even consult her about a house. And he bought, uh, he bought a bit of a broken down fixer-upper, which was her responsibility to fix up. So, what a dick. Ah, so the clinic wasn't right in El Dorado. It was just outside in a town called McLeansboro. And she, that made her feel a little better because she would be a bit further away from her mother. And they lived in a house uh, outside of the, the city or outside of the town in the country a bit. So for her, fine, I've got a house. I don't have to be near anybody and I can spend my time fixing it up. So even though they were a decent distance away, Noma would still drop by for surprise visits. And, you know, obviously she was trying to catch her in, in something, you know, catch her off guard. So one time Noma stopped by. And just walked right into the house without knocking. And she was with a group of her creepy ladies that were on their way to a funeral. Can you imagine this little funeral procession all wearing black of these like snotty, judgmental women just walking right into your home without knocking? <sighs> and Marion was dressed for cleaning. She had like, you know, shorts, t-shirt, whatever. And Noma, in front of everybody, said... You're not dressed appropriately for a doctor's wife. 
Marion bit her lip. She wasn't going to respond and she wasn't going to let Noma get to her and she didn't want to upset Dale. So she just went along with her, her shite. Dale was rarely home. He seemed to always be in McLeansboro working at the Hamilton Hospital. Sometimes the hospital was short staff and he would say to Marion, come in and work. Not like, could you please come help us out? Would you be interested? No, she didn't work there. And she was a wife. In those days, woman stayed at home and the husband went off to work. At least that was. So I, I, guess, so I guess she must have kept her nursing license. I would I think guess. so. Um, yeah, we need we're short staff. Get in here. So can you imagine? Yeah, come <laughs> no in and choice. work. And she said to him, look, where do you want me to work? What do you want me to do? I mean, I only, I mean, my skill set is X, Y, Z, not necessarily. He's like, I don't care. Come in. So she did. Moving forward. Dale was very popular. Like I said, he was a hometown hero who went back to help his community. He was held in the highest regard, not just because of his high school feats, but also because, like I said, he was a doctor. They settled in nicely, attending many dinner parties as guests of honor. They attended Sunday church, and Dale went hunting with his dad and friends. So, you know, the perfect scenario. Things dramatically changed for the worst on their first wedding anniversary. They enjoyed an evening together at home with dinner and drinks. In fact, they drank a lot, a lot more than usual. By the time they were on their third bottle of wine, they were fairly drunk and Marion was spoke of how excited she was about their future together. She told Dale that she felt that the sky was a limit. They could go anywhere. They could do anything. And then immediately his mood changed. He said to her, what do you mean by that? And she said that she just couldn't see them living in El Dorado area, southern Illinois, for the rest of their life. Small town, middle of nowhere. He could do big things elsewhere in a big city. He snapped. He walked slowly towards her and punched her in the jaw. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. So she shocked, hurt crawled up to the bathroom, was in there a long time. She thought he would at least come up and check on her, and she could just hear the glass clinking downstairs as he kept drinking. So she went and slept in another room. He woke up in the morning, went to her room and said, what are you doing in here? And she said, you punched me in the face. And he said that he didn't remember. That's right. Blame it on the alcohol. She was hungover the next morning. So he apologized profusely. By the end of the day, the bruise on her jaw was so big that it was black and it was it was black and she didn't leave the house for quite a long time until it was healed. How is she going to go out and explain that? Right. Mm. And she tripped. Yeah. And she Mm. didn't bring it up again and she didn't want to make him feel bad and she didn't want anybody to know about it. Things continue to go downhill from there. By February 1954, she found out she was pregnant and she was so happy. But Dale was like, yeah. He provided all the prenatal care and delivered his first son, Mark, on August 13, 1954. For Marion, it was love at first sight, and she showered him with love, as you should with a little tiny baby. You can't love a little tiny baby enough. Right? They don't do anything wrong. And they, 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 it's your child. You love them. They love you. Can't, you just can't love them enough. For Dale, he said to her, that she was raising a spoiled brat and that she would regret it. When he was like a day old? <laughs> He's already spoiled? He's spoiled. One day out of the blue, Dale told Marion that they would be moving to El Dorado. So no more of the nice little house in the country that she had spent time fixing up. 
Uh-oh. He just said, yeah, we're moving to El Dorado. Mark hadn't even been a year old at this point. So the reason why he moved there is because the a doctor in town had moved, was moving back to St. Louis. So he sold his practice and his house to Dale. Mary knew nothing about this. It was, you know, a complete surprise to her. And she was less than pleased. It was not the kind of move that she had hoped for. She obviously was hoping they would move further and further out of the <laughs> southern Illinois area. But she did like the house and the convenience of having stores and services and things like that nearby. Dale had plans of improving the hospital into a modern facility. So even though, okay, so. So when you say hospital, is it kind of like, it's a doctor's office, but. No, it's a hospital. His office was separate from there. Oh, okay. Okay. But this hospital somehow, I, I wondered that throughout the thing is like, how do you just say, I'm building a new hospital? But obviously there's a way that he was able to get money to improve the hospital. So there would be a new improved hospital that he would run, be the big boss of, and he would have his own family practice. The thing is, when he went to school, um, he learned how to do surgery. Not major surgery, but he could do things like remove appendix and deliver babies. That's not really surgery, but, you know, any complications that would come with it. Uh, anesthesiology, he could do some of that stuff on, on his own or, you know, could hire the proper people to do that. So it wasn't just that he was a general practitioner. He had other skills that when you're going to work in a small town, in a small town hospital, you have to have a wide variety of skills in order to be able to do a, a good job there. So things were really going his way. He was happy. He was doing whatever he wanted. Didn't have to talk to anybody. Didn't have to consult with anybody. He just did what he wanted. Perfect for a guy like him. I want to talk a little bit about Southern Illinois here. Like I said before, it's it's kind of like a character in this, this story as well. Southern Illinois is also known as Little Egypt. And that comes from some biblical term about the history of the place. I'm, I don't know. I'm not going to get into it again. I got a lot of this information from the book. It looks like an idyllic place to live. If you want to live away from the big city, you see the rolling hills of the Ozarks, you see farms and small homes and quaint churches surrounded by forests. However, what you also see are great gigantic craters in the land uh, left by coal mines. And they would get the, uh, coal dust would be piled up high and sometimes just ignite on its own. So they would shovel up these mounds of coal and coal dust and the coal dust would get everywhere and there would be holes in the ground and there's so much poverty and, and death surrounded by the coal mines. There was a cultural divide, classism, racism, and women's places in the home and fervent Christianity. Many problems were solved with guns. The crime and murder rate was high and outsiders were not welcome. Secrets were kept behind its borders, and you do not share your business with others, especially outsiders. And so here's a quote from the book Murder in Little Egypt talking about um, uh, Southern Illinois. Quote, Sailing County, like the entire 11-county area known as Little Egypt, is one of the most violent places in America, with a murder rate per capita comparable to or exceeding in any given year, that of Chicago or New York City, compared to the U.S. as a whole, the annual murder rate in Little Egypt is nearly double at 10.1% versus 6.6% for the rest of the country. 
end quote. So wow. Can, so, yeah. Um, the, is that still current or just at that time? At that time. I don't know how current it is, but, you know, hmm. it's still it's still not the safest place to live unless you're no, in general, still. Um, no, I mean, the town isn't all horrible. You know, you have, you know, your church gatherings, your fundraiser, sports, summer barbecues, that kind of stuff. But underlying the whole thing is that you are either from there or you're an outsider. Hmm. And th this is how things are solved. This is this whole culture of the area. Good or bad, it was the perfect place for Dale Cavanis to live. He was both idolized and protected. He literally could do whatever he wanted, no matter what it was, even bullying, abuse, crimes, and murder. Dale was next to God in El Dorado. Dale knew how to charm and use people. He knew how to get what he wanted. And there would be consequences if he didn't get what he wanted. Dr. Jekyll would take on workman's comp cases, which most doctors don't like to take on because it's a ton of paperwork. They don't get paid very much. And there was a high rate of workman's comp because of coal miners. Very dangerous job. But he never turned anyone away. And if you couldn't afford to pay him, he treated you anyway. He would listen to them and that he deeply cared about them and he would help them in any way. They felt very safe and cared for. And that was like his doctor persona, his caring doctor persona? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. If it works for him, it works for him until it doesn't. And then he bullies. So here's your Dr. Hyde personality where he would tell pregnant women that, quote, if they wanted to be a slob and gain more than 20 pounds, they could find another doctor, end quote. If anyone questioned his diagnosis, they would be met with sarcasm and an invitation to find another doctor. His office manager, Marilyn, witnessed many disturbing things that Dr. Cavanis did in his practice. He played some sick jokes and pranks on his patients, and she didn't escape his vindictiveness. He once asked her to go into his office and look into the eyes of a patient. I guess he wanted her opinion, even though she wasn't a nurse or had medical training. So she, he asked her to get really close to look into his eyes. And when she was done, she went back out to her office. He sent the patient home and he burst out of his office laughing. And he said, ha ha, he has the mumps. You're probably going to get it too. So a woman over 30 getting the mumps is incredibly painful, a long healing process and could be very dangerous. So this was his joke. Do you know if she got the mumps? No, she, she, for weeks she waited and she didn't actually get the mumps. And she was like afraid every day until, you know, that exposure or that, you know. Well, then probably depending, when was the MMR vaccine come into play? Uh, I, <laughs> what a jerk. Yeah. He's just a jerk. Here's another one. And this just goes to show, like, I, I think this is, this is pretty sick. Okay, so one of his patients was the pharmacist's wife. Uh, he worked with the pharmacist closely. They had a, a good relationship because the pharmacist was making a lot of money off of Dale because he would send them there to get their prescriptions filled. She was seven months pregnant. He convinced her to get an x-ray. So she's, she's saying, no, I mean, it's not safe to get an x-ray. He said, no, 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 that's just made up. You know, that, that's not true. X-rays are safe. So not only did he give did he give her an x-ray, he swapped it with a fake one. And in the fake one, it looked like she was having twins. So the, they were thrilled. They went around, they told all their family and friends, guess what? We're having twins. They went even went out and started buying two of everything. 
including like a tandem stroller, that kind of stuff. Um, he let them believe this for quite some time. And then one day he, and he just thought it was the most hilarious thing. And then one day he says to them, ah, it was a joke. Who does that? Like, it's so unprofessional. So he exposes the child and the mom and then <laughs> lies to them. They get their hopes up. They're so excited. And then he's like, it's a joke. Can you imagine how devastated they would have felt? That's just sick. That's like his mom's death game all over again, right? Yeah. Like, but in essence, uh, if they were excited, I mean, that's a point. They just kind of lost a child in a sense. Does that, does that make yeah, any, you know no, what I mean? No, it's really sick and cruel. It's yeah. just diabolical. Cruel is, is, a, is, is a good word for it. So, and um, like, so, and then, and, you know, the first thing they ask you when you come for like an x-ray or an ultrasound is, do you think you might be pregnant, right? Yeah. <laughs> and even back in those days, which was in the 1940s, early 50s, they even knew then. And I don't know if they were as safe as they are now. <laughs> right? So anyway, um, so the Becks, that, that was their, their name. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. Do we get pissed off and be like, fuck you? Or we have this relationship where we're making a lot of money off each other. Do you want Dale to turn on you and just ruin you? Which is what he would have done. So his behavior has not changed. So let's talk about the business side of his practice. He wanted nothing to do with anything that had to do with money. Unless it came to trying to screw people out of money. So his office manager, Marilyn, was did all the accounting and, and finances. And she would try to talk to him about the way he was spending money and doing things and following up, collecting money from accounts and stuff like that. And he's just like, I don't want anything to do with it. And then all of a sudden, he'd say, uh, I want you to sign off these forms. She looks at the forms and says, no, this is fraud. You can't, you know, say that you did things uh, or, you know, I don't know, like set a broken leg when you didn't and then ask for payment for it. So this is what he was doing. And she said, like, absolutely not. I am not doing this. This is against the law. So he would fire her. And she'd say, oh, it's fine because her doctor, her uh, husband was a was a doctor. She'd say that was fine because her husband was a teacher. They didn't necessarily need her income. It was good and it gave her a job and. She was happy to work and that kind of thing, but she didn't need the job. So then he would beg her to come back and give her a raise. And she'd say, okay, I'll come back if you don't do this anymore. And he kept doing it and she'd quit or he'd fire her and it would just go back and forth, back and forth. But at the end of the day, she refused to, to do that. Dale's social circle became more and more affluent. If he wasn't at a party, he was hosting one with the prosperous members of El Dorado community. So like I said, I mean, how, you know, I, I've spoken that it's a poor area, but I mean, if you're a doctor, if you're a pharmacist, if, you know, you're a lawyer, there are members that live there that do have, have money. They didn't just attend parties. They were going away on expensive couples vacations. Dale, in the meantime, started to drink more and more and it was becoming a problem. In fact, he was drinking all the time and he was a nasty drunk and he became more and more aggressive the more that he drank. He hated anything to do with family and tradition. He became very sour during traditional holidays like Christmas or Easter. He did not recognize birthdays or anniversaries. He would just was just another day. And he resented doing anything family related, including having any family photos taken together. He just didn't care. Didn't want any part of it. 
Um, and he, he wasn't interested in doing anything with his family. He spent most of his off time with his friends gambling, fishing, hunting, golfing, or just drinking at a bar. And this didn't change when they had their second son, Kevin, who was born on the, his same birthday on October 15th, 1956. And then he had a third son, Sean, born on May 20th, 1962. The only thing that really did change after the birth of their boys was that he went from becoming a heavy drinker to a full-blown alcoholic. And for the little bit of time that he was at home, he was barely home at all now. And when he was at home, his behavior was unpredictable. He could be joking one minute and colds and aloof the next or break into a violent rage after that. Marion and the boys never knew what to expect. They were always very careful around him, trying to judge what his mood was. When angered, he would verbally attack the family, saying horrible and demeaning and humiliating things to them. He would also threaten violence, and those threats often turned into beatings. The boys loved their mother very much. She was kind and she was patient. She was loving, nurturing. They went between hating their father and they just really wanted love from their father. And they would hope that one day he would change. And in fact, that would never change. It would get worse. And he would murder two of his sons. So he was a nasty drunk, alcoholic, and he would beat his family. Did he beat the kids too? Yeah. Oh, okay, so he beat, beats his wife, beats the kids. Yeah. And just would say the most horrible, horrible things to them. Like humiliating, cruel, spiteful things. Thankfully, they did have a good role model, male role model in their life. Their grandfather, Peck, just absolutely loved the boys. He did everything with them. He taught them how to hunt and fish. They would go out on day trips together. They were often over at their house, um, just hanging out and spending time with their grandparents. Noma was actually, she was fine with the boys. They're, she just, I guess she mellowed out with age. And uh, they were they ate dinner there. Marion was invited. She spent time there too. So uh, th th they had someone in their life. And you think about it. They're the parents of this this psycho. You can see where it came from, from Noma. But it's, it's good to hear that they had this in their life. Dale, in the meantime, was being Dale. And he was always trying to show people how tough he was. He believed he was more manly, tougher, stronger, smarter than anyone else. He was a sore loser, like I already said, I know I'm repeating myself, and a dirty participant in any contest, for fun or for fights. He loved to shame people, tease them, and humiliate them. If anyone tried to do the same to him, it would become violent and even deadly. So I'm just going to give you an example here of him showing off. Marion and Dale took the boys to go swimming out in Shawnee Town, and it was this big river. And... There was a rope swing that went over it. So, the, of course, the boys would climb up and swing off of it and get into the water, you know, splash into the water and have a great time. Well, Dale had to show everybody that was there. I mean, it was a place where lots of people would go. And his sons, that he was way better than they could ever be. So there was boards nailed into the tree to the swing so you could just climb up the boards. And on his way up to swing, he caught his sole of his foot on a nail and ripped the whole sole of his foot down into his heel. Okay. Oh, that just sounds. I know. I know. So he, he acted like it didn't happen and he 
climbed up to the tree, got a hold of the swing, and the and the doofus didn't even know how to swing on it properly. So he held on to it too low. So when he swung, 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 swinged, <laughs> he landed swing. on the on like the muddy shore. So he's like flap, didn't even get it get into the water. <laughs> From there, he jumps up, swims in the river over to where there's a, a houseboat. Gets onto the houseboat, sits there, says to the owner of the houseboat, oh, do you have um, any fishing tackle? So now he's got this gigantic flap of skin where you can see the tendons in his foot hanging off. And he he pulls out a rusty (laughs) set of scissors and cuts the flap off. What? Yeah. Why would you? Because he's a tough guy, right? He can handle it on his own. Then he jumps back in the water, swims out, and that was the end of the day. He drove home with his foot like this, bleeding all over the place. He must have been hammered or something. I don't know, yeah. And Marion said to him, to him, okay, you need to go to the doctor. He's like, I don't need to go to the doctor. I am a doctor. And the next day, when he went into work, he had to wear a slipper on, one, on that foot because it didn't fit into any of his shoes. While he was there, he just took, he took like a handful of antibiotics and went about his day and almost passed out while delivering a baby. Jesus. Because he was in so much pain. And yeah. Could get tetanus. Oh, the guy's an idiot, right? Infection from the dirt, the rusty. Complete fucking idiot. And of course, everybody's like, look at him. So he achieved this level of he's such a tough guy, such a hero. He... Basically, he embarrassed himself, so he just went on with it. Well, yeah, no one likes to fall. I mean, a lot of the of the pain of it is the embarrassment, so to speak, of a fall. I just don't but get people like have, that. Like half of your foot ripped off or big flap of skin ripped off. Like, yeah, that's oh, okay. So, so wrong. So here, here's another one. Um, Mark had a couple of girlfriends, not his girlfriends, but girlfriends over visiting. And they were just chatting away about wanting to get earrings. So Dale's like, I, I can get, I can do it for you. Now, I'm a doctor. It's easy. And they're like, ah, I don't know. They were squeamish. So he took a pin and jammed it through his bottom lip. He's like, see, it doesn't hurt. They looked at him and they're like, um, we've got to go. <laughs> Who sticks a pin right through the bottom of their lip? How much would that? Like, what an idiot. And he was like laughing and talking to him with his pin clocking on his teeth. Blood pouring down his face. Well, not pouring, but so yeah. This is that's the kind of bullshit that this guy would pull. Probably never walked the same afterwards. No, that, that's um, that's the case. There's certain injuries that he uh, got over the years where they just never were the same again. He got a, a broken arm. They didn't it just didn't set properly, so his arm was kind of effed up after that. And uh, okay, so. As his wealth grew, so did his temper. First of all, Dale was notoriously bad with money. Over the years, he would make disastrous investments, losing hundreds of thousands of dollars at a time. And uh, he would end up owing as much. He took advice from no one, and his family would suffer because of it. He bought a lot of property and farms in the Saline County area. And while he was on the farms, this is where sometimes he'd get his most drunk, because he'd have people working on the farms, he'd show off around them, and... He would just like drink pint after pint of vodka. That was his drink. And he forced his sons to work there. And he would tell them, oh, go do this, that, or whatever. Now, these kids don't know anything about farming. And when they'd say, we don't know how to do that, he'd be like, 
you're not men. What are you? You're losers. You're not our kids. You know, he would just like rip them apart. These poor kids. How, how the hell were they supposed to know what to do? And here's a perfect uh, situation. This is a, an absolute Dale thing. He had a brand new truck. He was driving it. It got stuck in the mud. He could not get it out. So he went and got a bulldozer and smashed the truck over and over again to get it out of the mud. He destroyed the truck, drove away in his uh, bulldozer, and it was completely written off. Another thing he did, which was absolutely incredibly cruel, um, he was obsessed with breeding bulls. He believed that uh, he could breed exceptional bulls better than anyone else. And the breed he chose is considered the biggest cattle out there. They're called the Limousin, Limousin cattle. Um, it's a French name, L-I-M-O-U-S-I-N. And they're massive. Look them up. They have, they look like they're on steroids. These things are fucking huge. So he had a prize bull and... It was 2,000 pounds. Okay? So he was taking this prize bull to, I don't know where he was taking it. He was trying to load it onto the trailer. The bull's like being a bull and saying, it, was, say, it wouldn't get on. Just would not get on. So they tried everything to get this thing on. Oh, I don't care how many men there are. You're not going to move a 2,000 pound bull or a ton <laughs> bull if it doesn't want to move. He started to beat it with his fists. And he's calling it every name in the book, like the bull could understand. And when it still didn't move, he went out and he got a gun and he shot it in the head. I was waiting. I was waiting for that to come. That was fucking horrible animal cruelty, but all because he was having a temper tantrum and he couldn't get his way. So not only was that an absolute cruel thing to do, that bull was worth ten thousand dollars. Oh my god! In the nineteen fifties, so he didn't give a. For him, it's like I own it. You do what I want, or you're worth nothing to me. He'd lose money. Everybody would think, oh, yeah, look at him. He's a tough guy. He won't take shit off anything, including a truck and a, and a bull. By 1966, not only was he a full-blown alcoholic, he was completely out of control. His rages and abusive behaviors were even worse, and nothing could calm him down except exhaustion or passing out from drunkenness. The boys were often the target of his abuse, but Marion got the worst of it. The boys would be in bed sometimes and terrified listening to their father verbally abusing and beating and choking their mother. There were times where she would have bruises all over her neck. Um, she's had to, she, he's broken her arm. And they were afraid to go in and help her because, you know, they were young and he would have beat them practically to death as well. On top of that, he was having an affair with a woman by the name of Martha Cully. Marion caught them one day when she was driving by one of the farms and saw his truck in front of a trailer. He came out wearing next to nothing. And she's like, you dirty son of a bitch. You are cheating on me. And said, leave me alone. It's none of your business. Can you imagine? You saw me cheating? And I'm like, leave me alone. It's none of your business. <laughs> so we're talking about his cruelty. This is the stuff he started to do. Marion would go to a card party, you know, playing euchre or whatever. And she'd go there by herself, and Dale would show up with Martha on his arm. Like, he was openly taking his mistress to the same get-togethers. Like, what a piece of shit. And she was often, she'd walk out of there just humiliated and crying and, and go home. Of course, he, he got exactly what he wanted. And nobody would say anything to him, you know. Of course. During. Um, what do you think that made them look? 
made him look cool in front of the yeah. other of the women would think he's a piece of shit. Yeah, exactly. You know, but no one's going to say anything. And when he started to do this, she was pregnant with their fourth child. And at this point, he would only come home to pick up his laundry and maybe have a bite to eat. He told her that she had to do his laundry. So she was doing his laundry every day. Seven month pregnant with their fourth child. Living with a mistress. And when he was home, he was a complete psycho tyrant. She tried to talk to him about it. She's like, look, you've got a family here. What are you doing? And he would just like blow her off. So one day he had to go run an errand out of town. And he said to her, hey, do you want to come along with me? She's thinking, oh, well, maybe we'll have a talk about stuff and we can rekindle and all this will be behind us. And um, at one point he said to her, quote, I don't love you anymore. I don't need you. And I don't want you. And that was it. Pregnant. Takes her out for a ride. Tells her he doesn't love her. Humiliates her. He's living with a mistress. He's got three boys at home. <sighs> Ugh. Fuck. Anyway, in August 1966, Dale delivered their last child and another son, Patrick. Again, Dale showed no interest in his newborn son. He would drop by occasionally, always drunk. And he would find an excuse to beat Marion or one of the boys and leave the house in a bloody turmoil. In spite of this, Marion held out the hope that Dale would change one day. Then the boys dreamed of having a loving relationship with their father. Here's another example of, uh, of the kind of psycho he was. One night, he came home, crawled into bed with Marion, and passed out drunk. So when she awoke the next day, she saw that Dale had a bloody bandage on his neck from ear to ear. So how did this happen? He had gotten into a fight during a poker game. One of the players, a barber, accused him of cheating. The barber left the game when he lost all of his money. When Dale came outside, the guy had a broken beer bottle and stabbed him and slashed him ear to ear, narrowly missing his jugular vein. After he stabbed and slashed his neck, Dale, the, he took off. Dale ran after this guy, tackled him, had his head and was smashing it off the pavement and then started choking him. He almost killed the guy in the parking lot. Can you imagine this scene? This big burly barber comes out. He's got a, what well, doesn't matter if he's a barber, man, with a broken beer bottle, slashes and stabs him in the throat, runs. This little psycho chases him, tackles him, smashes it off the pavement with blood spurting everywhere all over this guy. And then he tries to choke him to death. The police show up. The barber ends up in jail. Dale ends up in the hospital. He gets his neck all sewn up. The doctor's like, you're lucky to be alive. And uh, that's that's why he ended up in bed that night, because I guess he, I don't know, for whatever reason, he decided to go home. He probably was cheating, right? I'm pretty sure he, he was cheating. Um, he would he'd do anything to win, right? But like, I mean, this is your, your town doctor. <laughs> yeah. Upstanding citizen. <laughs> he was also supposed to be financially supporting them and he was for a little while but then he just stopped the checks would bounce on she would uh, have credit at a grocery store and he would pay it off no longer would he do that so they had no money she is a mother of four boys he's a doctor so she showed up at his office one day because she kept trying to to call him and, and set up an appointment to see him and talk about it so she shows up at his office one day and says dale you need to support us and he said, oh, you think you're going to have a free ticket for the rest of your life? Go get a job. And then he said, I don't have any money to give you anyway. 
get the fuck out of my office. And that was it. So how is a mother of four boys, one, like, what, not even a year old or older, you know, maybe under two years old, Patrick, and this, this is what he does. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave things off here. I know that was a lot of information you guys just took in, but, uh, you know, just want to, I just want to tell this story of this, of this sick bastard and how one person can take an entire family, office, town hostage and, um, do the most cruel and sick things imaginable. And you'll see how much worse it gets. So, as we know, with these kind of people, it never gets better. And uh, so this was a long episode, but uh, yeah, I hope I hope you stuck with me on it. <laughs> the more I read about this guy, the more I dug into him, I was just like, oh. Yeah. And there's so much that I wanted to leave out, and I left out a whole shit ton of the things he did. I just pointed out some of the most... Uh, the ones that stood out the most, I think. But anyway, so yes, this is Dr. Dale Cavanis, complete piece of shit human being and uh, a fascinating, interesting, if not absolutely horrific story. And I just don't know how people like this get away with it. Or maybe I do. And that's that's the really sad part. Okay. So I want to Deep breath. Um, thank some new Patreon supporters. Yeah. Thank you very much to Die, Jessica McMahon, and Laura Dore. Thank you guys. Thank you everybody who supports uh, us on Patreon. Thank you, thank you. Holy smokety smoke, frickety frick. It uh, it does help out immensely. And uh, I know I, I, again, I always repeat myself, but it's because I always want to let you guys know how much I appreciate your support. Also, want to thank all of you guys that listen, those of you that are on the Facebook group, and those of you that leave iTunes reviews. Thank you so much. And on this note, why don't we end off by saying that please take care of yourself, take care of one another, and most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out. Yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't want to be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in. Learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable. Yeah. Subscribe. Make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stack.